little thin tonight, today. All the radical guys in our church are seen outing. And uh, chances are about 50 one or more or more back injured. This goes with being a man with too much testosterone or something. I'm not sure just what it is. Few things expose our character more accurately than the way we conduct financial And I think that is perhaps why one-third of the parables that Jesus taught had to do with money. This series, To the Glory of God, addresses areas of life where our lives interact with others, and I believe that none reflects or detracts from God's glory more than how we conduct our personal financial affairs. Father, with that in mind, I pray that what we have to say today would accurately reflect what you have said about our own personal finances, and that our hearts would be directed clearly towards being obedient, submissive, and reflecting your glory before a watching world. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the topic of personal finances is just that, very personal, and quite sensitive, to be honest. And um, for those of you that maybe are new with us this morning, um, usually the preacher doesn't try to tromp on your toes as, as hard as maybe you might feel it this morning. And I want to just say right off the get-go, I don't know anything about the personal finances of anybody here. So if it seems kind of personal, it ain't because I know anything about your finances. To accurately share with you what God's Word says. Some of what I say today will be hard to hear. Much will not be new to you. Most will be directly supported from Scripture. However, I am going to begin with something that is not directly supported from Scripture. It is a personal observation over the last many years, and it's this. Most of us, most of the time, do not need more income. We need, rather, to become better managers of the money that we do have. And the second observation is this. <clears throat> I have often observed that when one has excessive, unsecured consumer debt, that's called credit cards, and his income is, say, 30000 a year, if that income is increased suddenly to $60,000 a year, Within a year, that person's indebtedness will not be less, it will be more. These two observations are given because I believe that many times we do not see ourselves in financial bondage when in reality we are. So, before you stone me, I want to establish a little perspective here. How important do you think it is to be debt-free? 
One's attitude toward indebtedness largely determines one's approach to all other areas of finance. Number two, what does it mean to live within your means? Are you realistic or idealistic? Third, have you ever been deceived or cheated in a business deal? If so, what did you learn? And has it ever happened again? Just uh, want to pause for a second to tell you about a, a very close friend of mine who lives in the state. Her husband were given this sales deal about investing in remakes of Hollywood films. Man, they, it was a, the, the, the return was just awesome. It was too good to be true. Turned out it was too good to be true. But before they got any return on their first $25,000 investment, they invested <clears throat> in a second, a second film. Now we're up to $50,000 and yet no return. But boy, the pitch kept coming. And they invested a third $25,000. $75,000. They never received one penny in return. $75,000, poof. Pretty expensive lesson. Did they learn? No. Last year, they got this sales pitch about uh, penny auctions. I never heard of such a thing, but penny auctions. They tried to get me into it again and uh, looked at it. It was very clearly a Ponzi scheme, uh, one of those, you know. And, uh, boy, they were pouring their money into it. Still no return, not a penny back. And a week before the feds stepped in and shut the whole thing down, they sold their 401, or cashed in their 401k and put it all in. Poof, $100,000, bye-bye. They didn't learn the first time. Wanting to get rich quick, easily. Fourth, what do you consider the best business deal you ever made? The answer here reveals how financially alert we are, as well as whether or not we're equitable in our financial dealings. Fifth, how important is it to you to consistently give to the Lord's work? Our answer here reveals a lot about the sincerity of our relationship with God, but usually a whole lot more about one's discipline in managing money. And sixth, have you made adequate investments for the future? This, too, reveals a lot about one's values and willingness to control their money instead of being controlled by it. Now, you may have never before considered some of these questions. In fact, the whole issue of finances might be just kind of overwhelming to you. We live in a world that speaks a whole new language of financial ease. Many of these terms were non-existent 50 years ago. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover Cards, they did not come into common use until the middle of the 1970s, 40 years ago. I read an article this week talking about how 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 to get out of debt. He had three things to say. Number one, get out of the fog. Get a handle on where your money's going. The second thing he said was, talk to grandma. 
She lived without credit cards on a cash basis. If you didn't have the money to buy it, guess what? You didn't buy it. So, in light of, I don't know what the third point was. That was the one I thought was good. So, in light of the significance and, and complexity of this matter, uh, this is a real issue. I, I, I spent some long, long time, and I, I got a financial expert, world-renowned, uh, high, well-known, absolutely respected. It take a, took a lot to get him here. Uh, don't come out yet. <clears throat> His name is not Warren, as in Buffett. His name is not Bill, as in Gates. And his name is not Paul, as in Allen, or Donald, as in the Trump. When the drum roll comes, okay? Okay, drum roll now. <clears throat> These other fellows were just mere midgets of finance. Warren, Bill, Paul, Don. But in terms of possessing the greatest percentage of the world's wealth at one time, the richest man who ever lived, Solomon, king of ancient Israel. No drum rolls. He's in the book. In fact, he wrote three books. As a young man, he wrote the book of Song of Solomon. As an old man, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And as a mature man, and throughout his life, he wrote a collection of wisdom, which was collected into a book that we call in our Bible, the book of Proverbs. And most of what he advised can be distilled into five essentials of financial freedom. But before we consider these, I'm going to run a little test by you. The majority of this test, by and large, most of it, is found in the book of Proverbs. Principles and, uh, that he gave in the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to uh, run these by you to see if you really need to listen to the rest of this sermon. What else uh, Solomon had to say? Evidences of financial bondage. Number one, indebtedness. Now I'm talking about indebtedness caused by impulsive buying. Indebtedness caused by deals which demand an immediate decision. I'm talking about indebtedness caused by the purchase of vacations, adult toys like boats, campers, snow machines, and other non-essential depreciating items. If these things, kinds of things, are causing indebtedness into your life, you have an unrealistic uh, attitude towards indebtedness, in my opinion. Proverbs 22.7 says, The borrower is servant to the lender. And if you're in debt, you know how true that is. The second evidence is stinginess. The root of miserable, by the way, is miser. Proverbs 11.24, There is that scatters, yet increases, and there is that withholds more than is necessary, and it tends to poverty. Hastiness. There are no shortcuts to true financial freedom. Proverbs 28.22 says, He that hastens to be rich has an evil eye, and considers not that poverty shall come upon him. Stubbornness. Proverbs 13.18 Poverty and shame will come upon him who refuses wise counsel. Laziness. Proverbs 12.24 The hand of the diligent will bear rule but the slothful shall be in debt. Gluttony and drunkenness. And in this context, I want you to read that 
compulsive shopping. Compulsive shopping, I call it the, the retail rush. Going out compulsively to buy something, to get a fix. It's the same dynamic as drugs or alcohol. Same thing, but it is a socially acceptable sin in the Christian circles. Proverbs twenty three twenty one says, The drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and that drowsiness shall clothe a man in rags. And then preoccupation with this present world. This is another of those common acceptable sins among Christians. Here's what Jesus had to say about it in Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it is very clear that millions upon millions of Christians hearts are focused and preoccupied upon the things of this world because that's where their treasure is. Tardiness in paying bills. This usually is a reflection of the misuse of credit. Buy now and pay later. Gratification now. Deal with the cost later. I'm going to give an illustration of this. About 20 years ago, a couple came to me... uh, Annual income was about $25,000 a year, a very low-paying job. Uh, monthly income over $2,000 a month. And I said, the first thing I wanted to see is the outlay. So they brought it in. There's utilities and groceries and gas and insurance and rent and those kind of things. And then there was $400. Oh, what's that for? He had just bought a $35,000, $40,000 brand new pickup with all the bells and whistles, and he was paying $400 a month for that vehicle. The next item on the list, another $400 monthly bill. I said, what's this one for? He said, oh, that's our time. Okay. We went down to the next one, $200 a month. What is this one? Well, that's our timeshare in Florida. Now, add that up. That's $1,000 a month, 50% of his going poof. An illustration of He didn't need more income. Oh, he could have used more. But he had enough to get by, at least, spending on things he would never use or didn't need. Proverbs 3, 27, 28. Do not withhold from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. It was in the power of his hand to pay his bills on time. He would have just managed his money differently. And I didn't know where else to put this in, so I'm going to put it in right here. The Bible very clearly says over and over and over again, do not be surety for another. That means don't cosign for anybody, for anything. It'll save you a lot of hassle. It'll keep you from having a lot of destroyed relationships, but it's just not wise. My grandson called me three or four months ago, and he says, Grandpa, 
I decided that my car needs fixed. It was an old clunker that I got him started with. And uh, it had broken down. And he says he'd been to a Honda dealer. And he wanted, the, the dealer talked him in to leasing a brand new 19, 2014 <laughs> Honda Accord. I mean, we're talking about $350, $400 a month down a rat hole of a lease. Under no circumstances for you or anybody else will I co-sign for anything. The Bible says, he was unaware of what the Bible said. For 200 bucks, he got his car fixed. Said, thanks, Gramps, appreciate that. Justification of past business deals. Unfairness in past business deals need to be confessed, not excused. James 5, 1 and 4 says, Weep and howl, you who are unjustly rich, for the miseries that are coming upon you. Indeed, the wages of the laborers which you held back by fraud cry out, and the cries have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Failure to honor God with your resources This can reflect an ungrateful and selfish heart. But as I said earlier, most often it reflects an inability to give because of debt and other mismanagement of money. And finally, expenditures on the basis of how much is left at the end of the month. We're going to say more about this a little later on. But basically this reveals that one is not in control of their finance, but that their finance is in control of them. Now, I suspect that by now, I am the most unpopular preacher on the whole Kenai Peninsula. I'm sure I've stepped on a lot of toes. I intended to, if necessary. But I also suspect that there are very few of us who could honestly say that we do not find any evidence of financial bondage in our lives. So, Solomon's wisdom for the wallet and roadmap to financial freedom. Essentials of financial freedom have to do with what we know, what we spend, what we save, what we give, and what our attitude is. The first essential that we need to get a handle on is what we know. Proverbs 27 says, Be diligent to know the states of your flock and attend to your herd. Proverbs 23, get the facts at any price. Any enterprise becomes strong through common sense and profits by keeping abreast of the facts. Now, keeping complete record of expenditures is the fundamental first step to successful personal finance management. You've heard it said, or you've said it yourself, I don't know where my, all my money goes. Well, why don't you? Because you are not keeping honest records. Now, I might as well stop right there for some of you. You're ready to run out the door. You mean I got to keep record of where my money goes if I want to be financially free? Yes. Why would you work 40 to 60 hours a week to make a paycheck and then not know where it goes? Yet, that seems to be more often the case than not. Once one begins to record in black and white where all the money is going, light bulbs start going off. Wow! 
you got to be kidding me. You mean I spend that much? You mean that latte every morning costs me $2,000 a year? Do the math. Since 1973, it's a long time ago, Sherry and I have maintained a daily ledger of expenditures. That practice, when we first began, opened our eyes and logically led us to the second step of financial freedom. And by the way, it takes less than an hour a week to keep track. And at the end of the year, when April 15th comes around, doing your taxes is a piece of cake. It takes less than an hour. The first essential to financial freedom is to know Know what you own, know what you owe, know what you earn, and know where it goes, especially know where it goes. Now, I flunked, or no, almost, I barely passed first-year algebra, but intelligent being that I am, I came up with this equation. I plus EC equals C squared. I, ignorance. Plus, EC, easy credit, equals C squared, catastrophe of major proportions. Aren't I good? (laughs) But it's true. Ignorance, with access to easy credit, equals catastrophe in most cases. The first essential is know the state of your herds. Get a handle on the facts. That's where to begin. Oh, I didn't have that. Equation up there, excuse me. What you spend. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. But those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Now all through the Bible we are taught the principle of stewardship. A steward is one who manages the assets of somebody else. We need to come to the point in our lives where we understand that he owns it all and what we have are his assets on loan to us. Jesus' parable of the talents is based upon this truth. The Apostle Paul reiterated it in 1 Corinthians 4-7 when he said that there is nothing that we have that we have not received. Even the very air we breathe and the ability to breathe it is a gift of God. This is the essential mindset prerequisite to godly money management. He owns it all. When we understand that and accept that and appreciate that, we can then begin to become wise stewards of money. So back to the text here. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. The key word is plans. We plan to go to work. We plan to go on vacation. We plan to go fishing. We plan most everything in life that is important to us. So why would our spending not also be important enough to be planned? Planned spending is the primary, fundamental, second step to financial freedom. And it's inconceivable 
to me to approach spending any other way, yet more don't than do. So, if you're caught on the treadmill of debt and always with too much month at the end of the paycheck, is there relief? Yes, there is. It's called budget. Now, I've done premarital counseling with over 200 couples over the last few years. And when the topic of finances come up, people's eyes just light up. Oh, boy, we're going to talk about money. We've heard that that's the number one cause of conflict in marriages. And then the word budget comes up, and their eyes just glaze over. Why? Because somehow people believe that they are giving up control of their finances when they put themselves under a budget that they have made out. doesn't make sense to me, but it's what people, by and large, think. If I have to submit to a budget, I'm losing control. The reality is you're gaining control, and you'll have buckets of money at the end of the day that you didn't know possible when you were spending without a plan. We don't have time to explain a budget in depth, but what a, what a budget is is plan spending. It needs to be realistic. <clears throat> it needs to be flexible. It should be revisited every month. It should be by mutual decision if you're married. It should be the product of prayer, and it should be based upon goals, goals of giving, spending, and saving. <clears throat> and just, just for the record so that it doesn't become an onerous thing, so you don't feel deprived when you're under under a budget. In our budget, we have a budget for fun money. We call it entertainment fund. This is for us as a couple. We have a Christmas fund. You get, you know, we got 11 grandkids. You can imagine the hit come Christmas time. So, Every month, we put money aside. When Christmas comes, no big deal. It's, it's there, and we do our thing, and grandkids are happy, and grandma's happy, too. She's the one that's those gifts. I'm a little bit older than she is when it comes to grandkids, but, but uh, they love it. And then we also have another fund. <clears throat> it's called walking around money. At the beginning of each month, we get some cash from our account. We write it in the ledger. She gets half of it. I get half of it. I put it in my pocket. She puts it in her pocket. And I don't account for where that money goes, and she doesn't account for where it goes. It's just walking around money. Now, every once in a while, a latte is kind of good. That kind of thing. <clears throat> but a budget is a tool which allows one to plan and control his spending. If you're married... It gives both spouses current knowledge at all times of the status of your finances. And that's threatening to some of you, perhaps. But if any part of one's finances are not disclosed to your mate, that is just plain flat wrong. You're hiding something. And secrets kill. Budget is one area where a couple, especially if you're a young couple, you can have an, another area of your life where you're bonding. Budgets do not cause conflict. 
they prevent a whole lot of conflict. If you want help setting up a budget, sounds interesting to you, give me a call. I'd be glad to help. Third, what we save. The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. Now this was the hardest principle for Sherry and I to to master. I did some figuring a few years ago, and it uh, became clear to me that we could have accomplished the same thing at 10 cents on the dollar if we had started saving when we were first married. On Monday, May 22nd, 1995, I clipped an article from the Oregonian written by economist Humberto Cruz. Here is the pertinent paragraph and explains how for less than $3 a day, you can become a millionaire. Is Cole here? Boy, he tried to squeeze this out of me last Sunday when I said that you could become a millionaire on two bucks a day. Here it is. Did you know, for example, that if you save only $2.74 a day, invest the money in a tax-deferred account, and your investment just matches the historic return of the U.S. stock market, you will end up with more than a million dollars after 40 years. So, you're young married, you're in your early 20s, up two bucks and 74 cents a day will make you a millionaire 40 years from now, potentially. Just by cutting in half your latte consumption every morning, you could become a millionaire. Now, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's true. It's amazing how easy it is if we would be disciplined. Number four, what you give. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all you of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. This is definitely the most liberating principle of true financial freedom. Why? Because it honors God first and impacts all the other principles that Solomon spoke of. I heard, I've heard a lot of teaching on giving, and the bottom line always boils down to one thing. Put God first. All the rest will be blessed, and so will you. I hear people oftentimes say, well, I tithe. Well, in the Old Testament, it taught tithing. And that means, if you're a tither, that you give 23 and one-third percent of your income to the Lord. There were three tithes in the Old Testament. One that went to the temple, one to the Levites and priests, and every three years, a third tithe for the poor, to be put aside for the poor. That was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're taught proportional giving. Giving as God has prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. 
But here, too, the issue is priority, putting God first in our finances. Amazing how that when we do that, all these other disciplines kind of help fall into place. And I want to say in passing what I alluded to earlier. I often hear people say, I want to give, but I just can't afford to. Folks, you can't afford not to. In Malachi 3.10, Jesus said, prove me. I will pour out the, the blessings of heaven upon you if you will be faithful in this very thing. So you want to give but can't, well, how can you be, become a giver? Real simple. Start by keeping records. Make a budget. Begin to get out of debt. And in the meantime, start small. But start. God will honor it. He said, prove me. And just so you will know, God instituted giving for our benefit, not his. He created it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. It's all his. Part of it given to us to manage. And he said, and by the way, I will allow you to give some of it back because you need the discipline of giving. And there's reasons beyond that. Why give? Here's some that are given in Scripture. It's a reminder of God's past provisions. Hopefully bring gratitude to our lives. It's a reminder of God's present preeminence. He is first. He is God. He is the creator. He is the omnipotent one. And it's a reminder of God's future promises. It's like the old man who was walking across the desert approaching death of thirst. And just at his extremity, he stumbled upon an old well with one of those hand pumps. There is a wooden sign beside the pump engraved with the words, If you are thirsty, dig one foot down and you will find a glass jar filled with water. Pour the water in the pump, pump for one and a half minutes, and you will get a steady flow of water. Then refill the jar and bury it as before for the next person. Now, the dilemma is obvious. Does he drink the water that's in the jar and quench a little bit of his thirst? Or does he take the risk of pouring it in, like the sign said, and having a steady flow? Many Christians have cirrhosis of the giver simply because they are unwilling to prove God in this basic essential of financial freedom. You'll never be truly financial free until you're a giver, not a hoarder. And finally, what your attitude is. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better is a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fatted calf with hatred. Attitude is everything. One's attitude towards personal finances quickly reveals that we are caught in the idolatry of self, violating God's principles of finance, or obediently obeying his principles of personal finance, and in the process reflecting glory 
to him. I'd like to read one more passage. It is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul said to Timothy, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many arrows. I think perhaps the word instead of attitude should be values. What are your values? Well, I want to close with the Reader's Digest version of what I just said. Become a steward, not a possessor. With one hand, manage your assets. With the other, hold, hold them loosely. They're his. Become a steward, not a possessor. Take control. Don't let money control you. Pay your bills on time. It reflects glory to God. Make a plan to get out of debt and stay that way. And if you're uncertain as to what your financial priorities and values are at this moment, the most unbiased witness I know is the testimony of your checkbook or debit card. Start there with your checkbook or debit card and be honest with yourself and with God. Father, I thank you that money, like everything else, is a part of your plan for our lives. I know you take it serious because that, more than any other topic, occupied your teaching, Lord Jesus, when you were on earth. Father, that our hearts would make those adjustments that need to be made if we find ourselves falling short. Attitudes that do not reflect your glory.